this Friday, March 17th, is St. Patrick's Day, of course. I don't know how you celebrate. Maybe you uh, wear green or drink green beer. I don't know. But behind the holiday is a person, St. Patrick, and there's a story there that I think is we kind of a repeat of what happens in the book of Jonah. Patrick was born in 389 to a Christian family in Britain, but he had rejected his parents' faith. At the time, Ireland was this country that was filled with clans and tribes that were often violent and cruel. They would raid Britain's villages and take back slaves to Ireland. And that's what happened to Patrick. Age 16, his village was destroyed and he was taken to the east side of Ireland to work as a slave, specifically to watch sheep. At some point, he becomes a Christian, and we don't know many of the details. But what we do know is that when he was 22, or about six years after he had been taken into captivity in Ireland, while he was out watching the sheep, he got a message, a vision from God. And it was pretty simple. It just said, return to your homeland, Britain, return to your homeland, come find the ship that's waiting for you. And so he left, based only on that vision. He left, he escaped his master, he traveled 200 plus miles on foot, he went down to the water, he got on his ship, and went back home to Britain. But after a while, he started feeling this deep sense of calling that he should go back to Ireland and tell them about Jesus. And that deep sense of calling came from another vision that he had. Here's how Patrick describes what happened. I had a vision in my dreams of a man who seemed to come from Ireland, and he carried countless letters, one of which he handed over to me. I read aloud where it began. We appeal to you, holy servant boy, to come home and walk among us. This vision that Patrick had had a profound impact on him, and he immediately started making plans to go back to Ireland, where he spent 30 years telling people about Jesus. Now, Ireland, like I said, was ruled by clans and tribes, and these clans and tribes had, had chief priests or pagan priests in charge of them. They, they had druids who were uh, people who used the magic arts, and, and, and they tried to uh, keep Patrick from telling people about Jesus. They, they tried to kill him. Here's what Patrick wrote in his journal. Daily, I expect murder, fraud, or captivity. But I fear none of these things because of the promise of heaven. Patrick's strategy in reaching Ireland for Christ was pretty simple. What he did is he wanted to go talk to the, 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 the kings of these clans and tribes. He knew that if he could get the, the king, the ruler, to come to faith in Christ and follow Jesus, that many of the subjects of that king would also follow Jesus. And so that's what he did. He set out to win the leadership. He set out to win those to Christ who had enslaved him. And God used Patrick in a mighty way. There were thousands, probably tens of thousands, maybe upwards of 100,000 people who began to follow Jesus through the ministry of Patrick. There were hundreds of, of people who went to become pastors of churches. There were 700 churches planted in Ireland. God used Patrick to launch a spiritual revival that had an impact for decades after he had died. Do you think that God could do something like that again today? 
I mean, Pat, Patrick was used by God to launch a spiritual revival in Ireland. We're going to see today that Jonah was launched, to, used by God to launch a, a spiritual revival in Nineveh. But what I'm curious about right now is, do you think that God could do something like that today where we live? Do you think that God could do again in our day what he's done before? Or does it just seem too far-fetched to you? Like, there's no way that would happen. I mean, I guess God could do it. He's God, but th- th- that's not going to happen. I mean, because in our daily experience, we, we, we get the sense that people are moving away. People in our country are moving away from the Christian faith. Just a few decades ago, only 5% would have said they were spiritual nuns. That's not nuns like N-U-N-S. It's nuns like N-O-N-E-S. Like, when given a list of choices of faith they could belong to, they say none of the above. Nothing in particular. And now that number is 25%. There are almost as many spiritual nuns in our culture as there are Protestants. Could God do a revival in this world? Could, could God do something that he done in the history? Could he do it now as our country moves further away? From God. Do you pray for revival? Do you ever pray, God, would you revive my heart so that I would be more sold out to Jesus? And would you bring a revival to my school, my community, my neighborhood, my state, my church? One thing we know from the book of Jonah is that God wants to bring revival. God wants to bring people to faith in him. That's what he's doing now. God is drawing people to believe in him. But I bet if, if we would have asked you before you, 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 we started going through Jonah here on Sunday mornings, if I would have said, hey, what do you think the book of Jonah is about? You might have looked and go, well, isn't that the guy that got swallowed by the whale? That's what it's about. Jonah got swallowed by a whale. But did you know that great fish is only mentioned twice in the book of Jonah? One thing we know for sure is that, that most people would not have said that Jonah was about revival. And we know from now reading the book that it's definitely not about a great fish. No, Jonah is about how God uses an unusual prophet to bring about an unlikely revival. And Jonah is an unusual prophet. He's a prophet that doesn't obey God. He's a prophet that doesn't pray to God. And yet he's the prophet that God called to go and preach to the Ninevites, the Ninevites were, were, were uh, uh, the, the people who lived in the capital, Nineveh, of the great Assyrian Empire, the world's superpower at the time. But because the Ninevites and the Assyrians were cruel and violent and barbaric, Jonah didn't want to go preach to them. So he disobeyed God and ran as far away from the Ninevites as he could. He got on a ship and headed to a whole different place. Jonah thought when he was running from God's will... He thought he was running for his life, but he was really running from it. Whenever you find yourself running from God, running from God's will for your life, you are running from joy, from peace, from contentment, from security. Whenever you find yourself running away from God's will for your life, you can be sure that what you're running toward is misery. So because Jonah is on the run from God, God intervenes. And Jonah ends up in the sea and swallowed by a great fish. Inside that fish, he prays a beautiful prayer. 
Inside that fish, he, he prays the most well-composed, artfully done prayer. But that prayer is so filled with self-righteousness and pride that it makes God sick to his stomach. And that whale, that fish, vomits Jonah back up onto dry land. Jonah chapter three, verse one. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. God says to Jonah, okay, here, let's do it again. He takes him back to the first chapter of the first verse. He goes, let's run it back. Here it comes now a second time. Go to Nineveh. See, God calling Jonah to do this again. God coming to him a second time with the same command is God's way of saying, Jonah, you are not off the hook. See, what what God is going to make Jonah wrestle with, and I think what God is going to make each one of us wrestle with, is this question, who do you live for? Jonah, who are you going to obey? Who do you live for? It's a question you and I have to answer every single day of our life. Who am I going to live for today? Let's break that question down. Let's, let's, let's make it easier. Let's make it more uh, applicable. So let's take that question, who are we going to live for, and break it down. First question that we have to ask, if we're going to live for God, then, then we have to ask this question, is knowing Jesus better than anything you can imagine? Like think of the best life, the best job, the best, the, the best location, the best relationships, the best food, the best experiences. Is knowing Jesus better than all that? Because if it's not, if you think that there's a better life out there, a life that's better than knowing Jesus, then you're never going to find yourself living for God. You're always going to live for that other thing that you think will make you happier. The second question that we have to answer is, will I live the life God asked me to if I'm going to live for God, then, then I've got to live the life God asked me, not the life I live, see on social media, not the life I had planned out in my head for myself, not the life that other people have as I compare my life to theirs. But I've got to live the life God asked me to. But am I willing to do that? Third, is there anything in my life that doesn't please God? If I'm going to live for God, then of course that I've got to be able to do a little self-examination. But that's a scary question to ask yourself. To take all that you are and all that you have and all that you think, your motives, your words, your attitudes, your actions, to put it all up there on the altar and say, God, is there anything here that displeases you? Is there anything here that you want me to deal with today? And then fourth, am I available to be used by God however he sees fit? If I'm gonna live for God, then I'm gonna be available to be used by him but not in the way I see fit, not the way I wanted it to work out, but the way he wants it to. Maybe that means like you're doing a lot of servant sacrificial stuff that nobody sees and you don't get any recognition for. But these are the questions you have to kind of wrestle with to be able to wrestle with the main question that God is asking all of us this morning, and that is who are you going to live for? Now, if you wonder what happened in the belly of that fish, all you have to know is that God had to come to Jonah a second time and tell him to go to Nineveh. Whatever Jonah prayed in the belly of that fish, it was not a prayer of repentance. We know that because Jonah still isn't in Nineveh. 
See, when, when you turn from your sin, all repentance means is to turn from your sin and turn to faith to Jesus. And when you repent of your sin and make that turn, there, there's a change. But even in the belly of the fish, Jonah knew he had no plan to obey God. Look back, chapter two, verse four, this is what he's praying in the fish. I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. Oh, that's the problem, Jonah. You see, where's the holy temple? Jerusalem. That's where Jonah always had wanted to be because he hated the Ninevites. But where's he supposed to be? He's supposed to be in Nineveh. If Jonah had repented, he would be on his way to Nineveh. The Gospels tell us that uh, John the Baptist was out preaching, telling people they should prepare their heart for the coming of the Messiah. And the way he said to prepare their heart was to repent. This word again, repent, turn from your sin, prepare your heart for, for the coming of uh, God's king. And so people start coming, like religious leaders, all kinds of people start coming. And they say, well, we're going to repent, we're going to repent. And, and then John the Baptist says something that we would consider really rude. Is he doesn't just take their word for it, but he, but he challenges them. Look at what John says in Luke 3, 8. He says then, okay, great. You want to repent? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Oh, yeah. Like, because, because when a person really repents, doesn't just say it, but it, it, begins to, it begins to show evidence in their life. And so that's what he's saying. Produce the fruit that comes with a heart that is turning from sin and toward Jesus. And then John goes on to say something that I think is really relevant to what we're looking at in Jonah. He says, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. In other words, don't begin to say to yourselves that I'm going to trust in my religious heritage. Because that's exactly what we see Jonah doing, don't we? I'm a Hebrew. I'm a Jew. I'm not like those pagans, Jonah says. Thank God I'm not like them. See, he's trusting his religious heritage instead of getting right with God and then showing the fruit of that. And that's why God has to come to him a second time and say, get to Nineveh. Another reason we know that Jonah's not repenting in the belly of that fish is because he never owns his sin. Never owns his sin. I mean, look what he prays in verse three. Remember, he's praying to God. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas. Oh, time out, Jonah. <laughs> no, that's not what happened. Jonah is reframing the story to take himself off the hook. How did Jonah get into the sea? Well, remember, he doubled down on stupid, continued to run away from his life, run away from God, and the sailors, under his instructions, end up throwing him in the sea. But when he prays, he's reframed it, God threw me in the sea. This is really God's fault that I'm in this situation. See, real repentance starts with owning up to our own sin and saying, that was my fault. I take responsibility for it. In the 1980s, there was a, a couple, the televangelist, and they fit every single stereotype you have of televangelists. Their names were Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. They were a married couple, and, and they did, uh, became very prominent and then fell into problems that are kind of predictable, financial problems, adultery. Uh, the Charlotte Observer, which is where their ministry was headquartered, was going to come out with a newspaper story about Jim Baker's uh, adultery. And so uh, kind of under that pressure, he put out a press release or a confession. You get to decide which. All right, so here it is. What do you think? How genuine is this? I sorrowfully acknowledge that seven years ago, in an isolated incident, 
I was wickedly manipulated by treacherous former friends and then colleagues who victimized me with the aid of a female confederate. They conspired to betray me in a sexual encounter at a time of great stress in my marital life. Vulnerable as I was at the time, I was set up as part of a scheme to co-opt me and obtain some advantage for themselves over me in connection with their hope for position in the ministry. Don't you feel sorry for him? I mean, this dude is a victim, right? He didn't do anything wrong. He's a victim. But it's always been that way, hasn't it? That we always find someone else to blame, something else to blame, to reframe the conversation so that we don't have to own up to our own sin. Jonah blamed God. Eve blamed Satan. Adam blamed Eve. Who do you blame? What do you blame when you find yourself caught in a sin? Do you own it? Or do you say, well, you know, pressure is really bad at work. I mean, it's really a lot of pressure. That's why I reacted the way I did. My allergies are bad. The kids have been crazy lately. I haven't gotten much sleep. Do you find other ways to reframe it so you're, you're not at fault? See, we live in a, in a fallen world. We live in a broken world. Nothing's the way it's supposed to be. So if you want to find something else to blame, you can. And there'll even be a little truth in it. But blame shifting will keep you from following Jesus. The Jesus follower says, I was wrong. I did it. It's my fault. Chapter three, verse three. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord, finally, and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. So Jonah 3 tells us that Nineveh is a large city, three days to walk through. Jonah goes one day, and and instead of preaching about God and hope and forgiveness, no, he says 40 days, and then Nineveh is overthrown, and you can tell that Jonah's got out his popcorn, and he's waiting for God's judgment to fall. See, Jonah is is obeying, but you kind of get the sense that it's a reluctant obedience, the proverb says, God loves a giver. No, God loves a cheerful giver. Because God doesn't just care about what we do, but also why we do it. So now God is going to take this reluctant prophet that is only giving him the most reluctant obedience, and he's going to use him in a powerful way. Let's read the rest of the chapter, Jonah 3. The Ninevites believed God. Jonah didn't, but the Ninevites did. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Whenever you find them in sackcloth and ashes or dust, it's just showing their seriousness, uh, their earnestness in their repentance. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, Do not let people or animals, herds or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. So you hear what the king's saying? Let us turn. Let everybody turn from their evil ways. When God saw what they did, And how they turned from the evil ways, that's the repentance. He relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. 
God brought revival in the heart of the pagan nation. God brought spiritual revival to the people that the Israelites hated. God brought spiritual revival and brought people to faith in Yahweh to those who would have, no one would have guessed would have been interested in Yahweh. If you would have gone back to Israel and said, okay, guys, who are the people that are least likely to be interested in following God? They would have all pointed at the Ninevites and said, never. You ever find yourself, like you walk into your office and you kind of go, well, who here would be interested in coming to church with me? Easter's coming up and maybe you're, you're thinking, who's somebody I could invite? And, and, and you kind of go, well, maybe these people seem like they might be interested, but not this person, no way. Or maybe you do that in school or in your neighborhood. See, we put ourselves in the position where we try to decide who might be interested in God. But if you'd have gone back to Israel, nobody would have thought the Ninevites were. If you'd have gone back to, to Britain, nobody thought the Irish, who were following the, the magicians, who were violent and cruel, nobody thought they were interested. But God has a way of bringing to faith people we would never expect. In 2023 is a banner year for me and my wife because we've seen two movies at the theater now. Uh, uh, I told you we went to see Top Gun a few weeks ago and that was the first film we'd seen at the theater like in a decade. But we, we went and saw uh, Jesus Revolution uh, this, a couple of Friday nights ago. We had, a, we had dinner plans with somebody and they got sick and they fell through. And so we're like, what are we gonna do? Well, we had fun, we went to that movie. Let's try it again. Let's run it back, see if it works. And, and, and we go to Forum and, and they Jesus Revolution, okay, let's go see that. And it turns out that Jesus Revolution, maybe you know this, is based on a true story. And it's the story of how God in the 1960s, late 60s and early 70s brought revival to the hippies. Starting in Southern California and it spread throughout the United States, God brought revival to the people who were the drugged out, tripped out, people that no one would have ever guessed. The people that the religious church people were scared of, God brought spiritual revival to them. Let me tell the story in, in two covers from Time Magazine. 1966, Time Magazine's famous cover asking the question, is God dead? 1971, and this is where the film gets its name, they put on the cover, Jesus Revolution. A, a, a hippie version of Jesus. A very positive review of what God was doing. In 1966, people thought there's no way God would, would, would do anything here. I mean, everybody's moving away from God. People are abandoning God. Nobody even believes in God. Five years later, God is bringing to faith people who are far from him. So what do we take from that? Well, well maybe one thing we should take is this, is that God is not reluctant to save. Jonah, Jonah was reluctant to go to Nineveh, but God wasn't reluctant to save Ninevites. Are you reluctant? Because God isn't. God isn't. God has come to seek and save the lost. He is chasing down sinners. He sent his son to die for people's sins. God is not reluctant. He is pursuing people. Are you reluctant? Because he isn't. 2 Peter 3.9 expresses the heart of God. God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. On Wednesday, February 8th, at Asbury College in Wilmore, Kentucky, a two-stoplight town with one grocery store, under 6,000 people live in Wilmore. 
God did something. He started to do something at Asbury College. It's a small religious Methodist school there in Wilmore. And, and a guy named Zach McCreebs, uh, this is a picture of him. He's a volunteer soccer coach. Uh, he, he was supposed to give the chapel service. You see there's, there's a sermon during the chapel service. There are three required chapel services for the, uh, each week for the students at uh, Asbury and he had gotten in the late night before and hadn't really prepared for a sermon. He said it wasn't very good. In fact, after his sermon, he, he, he texted his wife and said, well, that was another stinker. And most people who heard it said, yeah, it's pretty much right. It wasn't all that good. Uh, but there were 1,400 kids in there, college students, listening to that talk. And after it was over, after the service was over, everybody left like normal, except, except not everybody. A few people stayed, and they just began to pray and sing and confess their sins. You see the Spirit. The Holy Spirit was doing something there, doing something powerful there. And, and, and people just started kind of uh, uh, getting together in small groups, and w- words spread throughout campus. Kids were texting each other, saying, hey, come back to Hughes. That's the auditorium. God's doing something here and they just were singing and confessing and reconciling, like people who had arguments with each other, who disliked one another, were asking each other's forgiveness for how they gossiped and slandered and, and, and each other. I knew it was big when, when instead of going to watch the Super Bowl, because I thought, okay, this revival is going to end when the Super Bowl comes on, right? Because everybody's going to go do that. But it didn't. I mean, Hughes was packed. And it stayed packed day and night. There were no celebrities. You know, we live in a celebrity culture, but no celebrities at Hughes. There was one woman, a worship leader. She's very talented. Her name's Carrie Job. She went, but, you know, they said most of the students didn't even quite recognize her. And no one who did pulled her up on stage and said, okay, now you lead. Although, she, like she said, she's very good. What she did is she just went up front and got prayer like anybody else. News personalities like, like Tucker Carlson said, well, we want to go and kind of give it a coverage. And they said, please don't. This, that's not what we're doing here. No celebrities. Jesus is the only celebrity here. And so they were like, okay, that's cool. People from around the world came. People from every state came. There were maybe, people said, as many as 100,000 people in Wilmore, Kentucky, to see what God was doing. It was all over national news. It was, it was covered by people who were and weren't Christians, and they were all pretty um, impressed at the sincerity of these students. Finally, around December, uh, February 23rd, they kind of said, okay, we got to move on. We got to go back to class and we got we to see how God wants to take this and use it in the future. Do you think God could do that here? Do you think he could bring spiritual revival here because he did it in Nineveh? He changed the people that were the least likely to be interested in him. He changed their heart and there was a mass revival. He did it in Ireland. Under St. Patrick's leadership, God used him to bring thousands and thousands of people to Christ. He did it in the hippie movement, the LSD doing hippies. He did it there. He took the people the least likely to follow Jesus and he brought them all the faith in him. He's doing it in Asbury. God is not reluctant. He is not willing that any should perish, but he wants all to come to repentance. Have you been praying that God would just revive you in your heart? Because that's probably where it starts. Let's pray. Would you just take a moment and just pray, God, would you bring revival to me and to my heart? And then just expand that circle. 
God, not just to me, but would you bring revival to my friends, to my small group, to my family, to my church, to my country, to your world, God. Ask him. God's not reluctant to save. He sent his son. He's seeking and saving the lost. God, have mercy on us. I pray that each of us would ask you to revive our heart that we might follow you. That we might turn from our sin and follow Jesus. That we might be sold out to him and that we might represent you everywhere we live, our community, to every person we know, that we might be the hands and feet, the mouth, the mind, the heart of Jesus to them, and that you would do something that only you can do, and that is bring spiritual revival. God, give us faith to believe enough to ask you to do it. Our hope, our life, our joy, our everything is in Jesus, and we want the whole world to know that. And we want them to experience the peace and the joy and the contentment that we found in Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand to receive God's blessing. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us today. Have a great Sunday.